This morning's reading comes from Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. If this is your first time here, we're really glad you're with us. We've been studying the book of Galatians for the last two or three months, and we're in Galatians chapter 3 today. And this past week, uh, I came across a book about Galatians uh, that I didn't even know existed. Uh, And so when I was preparing for this study, I found like four commentaries that I was going to work through, and so I've been using those throughout the series. But then I just realized this week that like my all-time favorite author, Eugene Peterson, wrote a book on Galatians in the early 1980s. Now, I know this is super nerdy, right? Like, I get that. You want a little bit of nerdiness in your pastor. But this was like, like having a best friend for many, many years and then having like a wonderful community that you've been part of for many, many years. And then they, they come together at once and you just like could not be happier. So that was, my, that was my week. And what Peterson's book is called, it has a very unusual title, which is why I didn't find it and it's not a bestseller. Uh, but it's called Traveling Light, Meditations on St. Paul's Letter of Freedom. And it's called Traveling Light because the message of grace in Galatians welcomes us into this life of freedom. It, it lifts our burdens. It, it, it removes the, the heavy burden that's on us by setting us free in the grace of God. And so we can travel light through life. And this is what Peterson says in the book. He said, when I looked at the people I was living with as pastor, I realized how unfree they were. 
They were overcome with anxieties in the face of rising inflation. They were pessimistic about the prospects for justice and peace in a world bristling with sophisticated weapons and nuclear devices again, 1980s. They were living huddled, worried, defensive lives. And I wanted to shout an objection, don't live that way. You are Christians. Our lives can be a growth into freedom instead of a withdrawal into anxious weariness. And so I think Peterson is right about two things here. He's right about our, our searching for freedom because our, our lives, 40 years later, are, are still marked by an, an unfreeness and, a, and an anxiousness as we move throughout life. And, and advertising taps into this. You've seen car commercials where it's like, you know, a brand new SUV climbing a mountain and then it gets to the top of the mountain and there's nobody up there, you know, and then the, the two Patagonia wearing hipsters climb out of the car and they're like, finally, we're free from the oppression of like working in a, you know, suburban Starbucks or whatever it is. Like, finally, we are free from the oppression of our lives. But think about it. We, we strive to succeed in school. We strive to do well in our work so that we would have various forms of freedom in our lives. And yet, the second thing that, that Peterson points out is also true, which is that, that there is a true freedom. Like there is a freedom that can be found that will genuinely and, and completely and even eternally set us free. And that's what, that's what we see in the book of Galatians that the grace of God comes to us and we are saved by the work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. We receive this by faith. And so we are saved not by our good works, not by our best efforts, not because we've, we've cleaned the outside of the cup, as Todd put it so well, but because of what Christ has done in us. And then he goes to work on us from the inside out. When we live by God's grace, we're free to be ourselves. We're free to be ordinary. We're free to, to love and serve others as, as they are. We're free to have, have off days. We're free to, to struggle. We're free to be carried through life by the strength of another. And so this morning, we're, we're in this, this, this middle part of Galatians 3. You just heard the scripture reading. I don't know if you're like me, but kind of a tough passage. Okay, like, like not the most practical, not the most inspirational, nothing really jumps off the page at you in this passage. You know, honestly, I thought I had given this one to Cam. I'm like studying on Tuesday, like, well, how did I get this one? Like, I've never heard a member testimony where somebody stands up and they're like, I was in darkness. I was so anxious. But then I said to myself, self, did not the law come 430 years after the covenant? Amen. But even though this is not, this is not one of those Bible passages where, where the beauty's right on the surface, right there for us to see and take hold of, it shows us that, that so much of the scriptures function like an iceberg, where 80 to 90% of the mass lies below the surface. And if you keep pressing in and you keep descending into the depths, you keep mining for gold, there is real treasure down there. And the more we press in this morning, the more we, we open ourselves to what it has to say for us, the more we'll see, we'll see who we are. We'll, we'll see why we're here. We'll actually see where we've come from, why we're here, where we are now, and then where we're going 
in a very spiritual sense. And so there's three really important biblical concepts that this text teaches, and it's covenant, law, and Holy Spirit. So covenant, law, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to start with the promise of the covenant. And this passage picks up where we left off last week, which was verse 9, which said, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham. And then our passage, verse 10, it's, it's Paul coming in hot again. And he said, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And so what he's doing is he's, he's setting up two different ways of life, two different ways of relying. The first way is relying on faith in the work of Jesus. And the second way is relying on us doing the works of the law. And so the, the flow of the argument in verses 10 to 13 goes like this. Anyone who relies on the works of the law for salvation will be cursed because you can't do the entire law. And the law doesn't, doesn't grade on a curve, you know, like you had in, in, in college, but rather it functions more like a, like a chain that holds up a tire swing, where if any one bit of the chain breaks, the whole thing just, you know, the swing and you, you just go flying through the air. If you break one bit of the law, you're done. The whole thing falls apart. Instead, the only way to be justified, which means to have right standing with God, is to live by faith. And so how can this faith give us right standing? Because Jesus took that curse that we deserved. He took the penalty for our sin upon himself. He became the curse. And so there's this kind of great exchange that happens where Jesus takes our penalty, he takes our death, and we receive his life, we receive his inheritance. And so that's what verses 10 through 13 are saying. And then Paul basically gives us a, a theology of the whole Old Testament with the remainder of the passage. And what he's saying is that there are two major periods in the Old Testament. There's Abraham and there's Moses. There's covenant and promise and then law. And so he basically filters all of, of Old Testament history through these two characters. And so he begins with Abraham in verse 15. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. I'm sorry about the blinking light. I tried to fix it earlier. My friend Ashley said it's just God winking at us throughout the service, so I like that. But the human covenant that, that Paul is writing about is, is a legal will. So just like we have, we have legal wills today where once you, you set the will, unless you change it, it remains in place, it remains in force, even if some of the circumstances change. So if you write in your will that you want, you know, your money or your possessions to go equally to your children and then one of them's kind of a knucklehead, like he still gets the same share as the others, even though some of those circumstances change, the covenant is still good. The promise still stands. And what Paul is talking about here is a very specific covenant and a very specific moment in Israel's history. And it's Genesis 15 where God comes to Abraham. This is years after he's made the initial promise to Abraham. But he comes and he reminds Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, Abraham is like a hundred and doesn't have any kids. His wife is 90. And for years, they've already had this promise with no fulfillment. And so just side note, God always fulfills his promises and basically never on the timeline that we would choose, in my experience. 
But what, what happens next is that God invites Abraham into a covenant ceremony. Now, this covenant ceremony was, was traditional in ancient cultures, even outside of the people of God. But what they would do in these ancient covenant ceremonies, they would take two tables like altars and set them up on either side. And then they would sacrifice animals and cut the animals in half and put each half of the animal on each one of the tables. So several animals would be cut up and halves of the animals are on each side of the table. And then the two people entering the covenant would then walk symbolically through those two tables. And the message was, may it be to me as these pieces, as these animals, if I don't keep the covenant. If I break my part of the covenant, I am willingly allowing myself to be, to be killed, essentially, to be torn apart if I break this covenant. And so gruesome, you know, very graphic. Thankfully, we have like PDFs and like e-signing documents now. That's a, a bit of technological progress I can get behind. But in Genesis 15, Abraham does it. He sets up the two altars. He cuts up the animals, puts halves on each side, and he waits and he waits and he waits, and finally he falls asleep. And in the middle of the night, in the pitch dark, God's voice booms over him and fire descends. God renews his covenant with Abraham, and then the fire moves through the two altars. Now, I don't know if you feel the significance of that, but Abraham absolutely would have, because Abraham was never asked to go between the tables. Instead, God was saying, I will fulfill all of the demands of this covenant. I will carry the entire penalty of this covenant and you don't need to go through. You don't need to even keep your end of the covenant because I will keep it entirely. And the essence of every biblical covenant is this. He is our God and we are his people. And the way that God establishes these covenants, he makes the covenant and he keeps the covenant. Really what we do in terms of his covenant does not matter. What matters is what God does with it. It's not dependent on our faithfulness. It's always dependent on his faithfulness. And so to come back to our passage in Genesis, or Galatians 3, Paul refers back to this to show us that the law comes, or the, the covenant comes before the law. He says it's essential for us to remember that the law came hundreds of years later. That's verses 17 and 18. He says the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So first comes promise. And just so there's no confusion, hundreds of years go by and then comes the law. And the law does not get rid of the covenant. The law gives some extra shape and expression of the covenant, but the covenant is the foundation, and the law doesn't change that. Like stamp it, double stamp it. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. The covenant is the thing. I believe that's dumb and dumber. To say it another way, not the dumb and dumber part, first comes salvation, then comes obedience. So that's not a New Testament thing. That's a biblical thing. That's a, that's a person and story of God thing. Salvation comes first, and then comes obedience. And you, you can remember why Paul is making this argument in the first place. It's because these false teachers have come into the Galatian churches, and they're telling them, you can be included in, in the blessing of Abraham 
if you follow the Jewish customs and, and for the men, you practice circumcision. If you do these things, then you will be included in God's plan of salvation. And yet Paul is saying, you fools. The equation is not faith plus good works equals salvation. The equation is faith in Christ equals salvation and then is preceded by good works. And like Todd said earlier, that's, that's a slight distinction, but it matters so, so much. Like the role of good works in, in our salvation always must, comes af, must come after salvation for it to be true Christianity. Tim Keller has said that these, these two ways of understanding salvation, they're not different emphases. They're, they're not a way of, like, of just trying to show your pattern of how you believe things. These are actually two different religions. To say that good works are required for salvation is a fraud. And yet to say faith equals salvation and then obedience, that's Christianity. And so that brings us to the second question, the second big category. What is the law for? What is the purpose of the law? Now it says in verse 10 and 11, I read these already, but all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then no one who relies on the law is justified before God. So if the works of the law put us under a curse and relying on the law keeps us from being justified, what do we, what do, we do with the law? What do we do with all of this Old Testament history that's, that's centered on the law and on Moses? Well, if you remember back, if you were here at the, the start of the year, we spent, I think, about four months going through the book of Exodus. And, and the book of Exodus is beautiful. And, and in just a, a very quick summary, what happens is God appears to Moses. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. God appears to Moses on a mountaintop with fire, and he speaks to him, makes a covenant with him. And in chapter 6, he says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. That's covenant language. And notably, there is, there is no mention of law. There's no mention of obedience. And so Moses appears to Pharaoh, let my people go. There's 10 plagues. Creation is pulling itself apart. And then Israel is released out into the wilderness. They're chased by Egypt's best army. And then God leads them through the Red Sea out into safety. Their enemies are wiped away. And then once they're free, they're still in the wilderness. And so God provides bread from heaven Every single morning for 40 years, he provides free meat every sunset, every day for 40 years. He provides water. He provides for all of their needs. And then, and, and only then, in Exodus 20, does God give the law. Salvation and then obedience. God saves us and then he shows us how to live. And so the law is, is meant to be a guide for us. It's meant to be a, a vision of, of moral good. It's, it's a blueprint for human flourishing in a broken world. I mean, Israel didn't even have to fight. All they had to do was put one foot in front of the other. And then now, once they are safe and secure, God shows them how to live. And so Paul says explicitly the purpose of the law in verse 19. He says, why was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. 
For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But it was given through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, if you remember Old Testament history, Abraham, Moses, what Paul is saying is now we are living in a third era. We are living in the era of faith in Christ. We are in a totally new season of redemptive history because of what Christ has done. And yet, the covenant still remains. And, And the law still has a purpose for us. Neither one is completely done away with. In fact, the covenant to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus, and the law of Moses, too, is fulfilled. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So both things were pointing to something beyond them, and both still have a role, the covenant being the foundation, the law being for our good. But we are now in the era of faith in Jesus. One of my favorite uh, scholars, N.T. Wright, he explains this with the illustration of a, of a space rocket. And so you know a space shuttle, it's, it's got its own boosters, but when it's blasting off from Earth, it's got that massive booster underneath it, right? So that launches it off the pad, gets it out of the atmosphere, and then, you know, the astronaut hits the button and the big thing just falls away and, like, lands in Wyoming or whatever. So the, the big booster... It was necessary for, for a time. It was necessary to get the space shuttle out, in, out of the atmosphere, but from there the space shuttle is able to navigate on its own. And so was the booster a bad thing? Of course not. Wright says, it was a good thing whose job is now done. Like the law of the job was to prepare us for Christ. It still has a function, but its, its job and our salvation is, is obsolete. It's it's way of, of holding things together for the people of Israel. That was just pointing us ahead to what Christ would do for us. We have freedom. And so now how do we relate to the law, having put our faith in Christ? Again, it gives us a standard of life. I mean, it is really a beautiful set of, of ethical uh, code. It's, it's, it's this vision for human flourishing. It also limits our tendency to drift away from God. And maybe most of all, it reminds us of our need for a salvation that's outside of ourselves. So the law is for our good. Following the law will always be good for us. But here's the distinction. Relying on the works of the law will bring death. You see that difference? There's there's following the law, knowing that we're safe and secure in Christ, but relying on the works of the law for salvation will always fail us completely. So we are living in this, this third era, the era of faith in Jesus. And we can know that all of this was God's plan all along. Verse 14 is the most important verse in this passage. I jumped over it earlier so I could hit it now for dramatic effect. It says, Christ redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the blessing to Abraham, Genesis 12, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, that was always designed to spread far beyond Israel. It was meant to go to all nations on earth, all peoples, through Jesus Christ. And that's why the passage says earlier, you remember that part about, it doesn't say seeds, plural, it says one 
seed, one descendant, one offspring, Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. And even then it says, so that. All of that, so that you might receive the promised Holy Spirit. And that is, that is the definitive marker of this third era. From covenant to law to the third era of life in Christ, the definitive marker is the Holy Spirit. And so that's the third thing, the presence of the Spirit. Now, the reason Jesus came to earth was to live perfectly and thus fulfill the demand of the law, but also to die for our sins, which, which satisfies the requirement of the penalty of the law. And this is God's surprising unveiling of his, his faithfulness and his plan all along to bring both Jews and Gentiles into one global family together and so that he might fill each and every one of us with his own presence, with the promised Holy Spirit. And so this is now the fourth reference to the Holy Spirit in Galatians 3. And Paul wants us to see that the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's not a, a footnote in the gospel. It's not an afterthought. It's not something just kind of nice and convenient that comes later on. But the Spirit of God is a person, the third member of the Trinity, just as much as the Father and the Son. And the Spirit is the personal presence of God given to us. And really what it is, is the Holy Spirit's gift to us is, is a foretaste of our future life. So you remember that the, the central hope of Christianity, it's not dying and going to heaven, but rather it's being resurrected, given a resurrected body, being raised to life and joined to all other believers from all tongues and tribes and nations for all history, and then to live on a renewed heavens and earth for all of time under the personal presence of God. That's the hope of Christianity. And yet God doesn't force us to just wait for that. He knows how much we'll struggle to just believe that and, and put our hope in this, this future beautiful life that we have in front of us. And so he sends us a gift from his future, and it's the Holy Spirit. That's what N.T. Wright says. He says the Holy Spirit is a gift to the present time from God's eventual future. In the same way that the covenant to Abraham was a promise of future good, the Holy Spirit is for us a promise of future good. That's why Scripture calls the Holy Spirit a, a down payment in Ephesians 1 of our, our coming inheritance. It's a bit of the future here with us now. Now, even this was, was seen and, and foreshadowed by the Old Testament that the days of blessing would be marked by the giving of God's own Spirit in Joel 2. And the promise of the Old Testament was that God would dwell among His people and now in the New Testament era, God dwells among us by His Holy Spirit. And thus, all outward signs of salvation, which is following the law or following the Jewish customs, all of those have been replaced by one inward sign of salvation, the Holy Spirit. My man, Charles Spurgeon, put it like this. Wherever the Spirit of God dwells, the covenant is fulfilled. You have in the Spirit the foretaste of the promised rest. You have the initial stages of the promised perfection. You have the dawn of the promised glory within you right now. And so covenant, law, and then Jesus and his Holy Spirit filling up people in the church. That's, that's redemptive history 101. So you, you made it. You did it. You got through. 
one of the toughest bits of New Testament scripture. Way to go. You all get an A. There's no exam because this is all grace, right? That's the message. There's no curve. There's no exam. There's no grades. You get, there is a grade. There's one grade. A plus. You got it. So we've done some heavy lifting theologically. I want to close with a few points of application, and then we'll take communion. First of all, rest. Rest in the freedom of the gospel. So the gospel is the good news, the central message of Christianity, that you are saved not by your works, but by grace alone and by putting your faith in Christ. This is the only pathway to true and lasting rest. I mean, the central message of Galatians is God's grace, and it lifts our burdens. It, it allows us to travel light, to move through life without all of its heavy burdens. And for me, almost every single time that I find myself anxious, overwhelmed, discouraged, even just hurried, it's because I've lost track of the rest that the gospel can provide. I'm out of touch, or, or as Galatians 2 said, out of alignment with the gospel. I'm out of alignment with the freedom that I have in Christ. I mean, twice this week, just almost dizzy with anxiety over things that were totally outside of my control. Another time, so, so overwhelmed with, with joy and delight, and then just like four minutes later, crushed with defeat, which is a reference to Mizzou football. I mean, <laughs> roller coaster of emotions. But I find myself each and every week like, why? Why do I get so hurried? Why do I care so much what somebody else thinks about me? Why am I so, so cut to the heart by the tiniest slide or bit of criticism? It's God's way of calling me back, calling me back into alignment with the gospel. Like, you are free, son. I've got you. You are in the family. I mean, think about the Israelites when they were going through the wilderness. If you were in like the back of this group of two million Israelites, it'd be like, can you hear what he's saying up there? Do we know where we're going? And then you look back and see the Egyptians and it's like, I guess we'll just keep going. I mean, it took so little faith to just keep moving to remain in the promises of God. But by faith, we just keep putting one foot in front of the other and we enter his rest. And so number two, risk in the freedom of the gospel. So hopefully you see what I did there, rest in the freedom of the gospel and then risk in the freedom of the gospel. I mean, if we have this great freedom in Christ, then, then we can travel light. We can, we can move through life without burdens. And in, and in Peterson's book, I loved his description of this whole section is called, you are free to fail. Like you are free, now that you are in Christ, to remove the burdens of, of fear of failure, of, of not having it all together, not getting it right. You can do anything and everything that God has put on your heart because you are free in him. Failure is not defining, it's not crushing. God invites you to move into a life of risk and faith. And so maybe in your community groups this week, one of the best questions you can ask is, is two parts. Where do you need to rest? Where do you need to lay down your work and trust in God? And then second, where do you need to risk? Where have you been living too timidly and in the freedom of the gospel, you can step out with boldness or, or spread the message and kingdom of Christ? And so risk and rest in the freedom of the gospel. And the third thing is to seek the Holy Spirit's power. 
in your life. Cam spoke brilliantly on this last week. We might ask if, well, we either, we either do or we don't have the Holy Spirit. Why would we seek more of him? And yet the, the whole witness of Scripture invites us to seek more of God's presence. Like Ephesians 1 says, we have the Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that suggests that we can, we can have the Spirit and yet diminish or grieve his works in our lives by not opening ourselves to his presence and his power. So if you say, how do I seek the Holy Spirit? By prayer, we ask for more of his presence and power. In worship, we praise God to the delight of the Holy Spirit. In living in the gifts of the Spirit that we've been given, the unique ways that we serve to build up the church. We can promote the unity of the Spirit in the church through our friendships and through reconciliation. And we can cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We can, we can take on the character of the Holy Spirit. See, all this the Spirit longs to do in our midst. And so may we seek His power in our lives. The very last thing, last application, it's to see Christ in all the Scriptures. I hope Galatians gives you a love not only for Galatians and the New Testament, but also for the Old Testament. I mean, Paul's like, let me give you an example. And then he gives you four Old Testament references. And he's not even writing to Jewish people. And he's like, don't forget about the promise. Don't forget about Moses. Because he knew the power of the Old Testament in our lives. And it's constantly foreshadowing Christ. I mean, think about Abraham, this, this sinful man who struggled to believe. He short-circuited God's plan by sleeping with a woman, not his wife. He was a complete mess. And so Jesus is the true and better Abraham. He is the true blessing to the nations. Moses, in the same way, he was a murderer. I mean, he committed murder. He constantly doubted God's plan and lashed out at God. Also a mess. Jesus is the true and better Moses. He's the one that says, I have come to set the captives free. And where was the covenant with Abraham made? But on a mountain, with, with flaming fire and, and God speaking a blessing. And where was the law of Moses given? On a mountain, consumed with smoke and fire, as God speaks a blessing. And then many years, another man is led to the mountain. Again, darkness falls on the land. Again, a sacrificial offering is made. God himself took the penalty for our sins. He made good on that covenant promise. God the Son was, was torn into two, the penalty for our sins. And so Jesus bore that penalty and makes this great exchange that he takes our death and we take his life. His future, His everything. But then after his Jesus' res Jesus's resurrection, He told His disciples, wait for power from on high. And they didn't know what that meant. But then Acts 2, again, God comes down. And again, there's fire, but this time the fire doesn't scare and it doesn't consume, but it's a gentle, sustaining flame, the Spirit of God resting on all believers from every possible background. And so the blessing that was given to Abraham has now reached all the way to us. We receive the blessing, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the blessing. 
And so the, the blessing continues to spread until God's children from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth is worshiping the Lamb of God, is, is filled with the Spirit of God, all to the praise of God the Father. Let's pray. And Father, when we just get a glimpse of your great story, it's so overwhelming, it's so, so good. It provides a freedom that we can't find by just trying to make ourselves feel a little bit better or by, by looking for a quick fix. And so, Lord, would you let this old, old story sink deep into our hearts? Help us to see where we are in the grand story, that we are in a very good place, having your Son to reflect on, having even the Scriptures before us on paper, and most of all, being filled with your own Spirit. Father, sustain us in, in all the challenges we're exposed to in this life. For our people, protect us as a church, grow us closer to you as a people. May we have a remarkable unity, especially between those of different backgrounds, different ages, all that sort of thing. May we have a remarkable unity in the Spirit. Father, you have just made your love rain down on us so much. You have showered us in your love. You have immersed us, baptized us in your love. May that love now come pouring forth out of us to one another. So Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in the power of your son's name. Amen.